to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, uh, continuing on, uh, here's your next little mini quiz. Winner, winner. Ooh. Well, I would guess chicken dinner. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's winner, winner. Everyone who contributes to the Double Loop Podcast Patreon is a winner because there's extra content that is only available to patrons. So make sure to go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast and even just a dollar a month can get you into all that stuff. Uh, and for you, Glenn, what do you have for me? Well, given that this will be coming out around Halloween, I have a Halloween oh, yeah. themed one. And it act, it seems to mirror yours as well. We're uh, <laughs> repeating words. So uh, that, and that's a little hint for you. Double, double. Uh toil and trouble no double double we're trying to double the number of patreon subscribers that's what we're looking for yeah no we have we've doubled up since we've started this uh, recent push to get uh you know more patrons on there so another doubling by the end of the year would be a, a great goal for us to meet uh so speaking of that uh, we do have a, a new contributor. Uh, a big thanks to Lauren, our new contributor this past week. So she sent a nice email asking for some advice as kind of a newer examiner and also started uh, contributing to the podcast. So uh, I hope our our uh, little bits of advice were helpful and uh, thank you again so much for uh, your contribution to help us uh, grow and get better equipment and and uh, you know, be a better podcast for all of our listeners. Thank uh, you. Also, uh, in the past week, got an email from a, uh, a latent print examiner who you know says big fan of the podcast. But where'd all the old episodes go? Uh, so, a couple episodes we mentioned it, so I thought I'd bring it up again since it got uh, an email sent out to us. Uh, the first oh hundred or so episodes. So that's about the first two years of the podcast. Uh, are now available just to uh, patrons through patreon.com. Uh, so even, like I said, even just a dollar a month uh, lets you get in there and all those old episodes uh, for you to re-listen to as you're preparing for whatever you need to prepare for or just to hear uh, us talk um, about all that stuff. And currently the current three years of our podcast is still free and online and available for everyone to listen to. And again, that's partly to get better equipment, also to uh, start paying for the the hosting website, all the stuff that goes along with the Double Loop Podcast. Uh, thank you for writing in, and and uh, hopefully that makes sense. And also, if people are, um, are looking for anything specific, uh, you know, we're just we're trying to try out some new things on what to offer in addition to all the old podcasts to patrons. Uh, so if listeners have any ideas on specifics about what you may want to see Glenn and I post for patrons to get more out of that dollar uh, or $5 or however much someone's contributing every month, uh, then just uh, send us an email and let us know. So Glenn, you've been doing good? You've been watching some Netflix recently? Yep, binging like mad to prepare for this. Uh, yeah, I've worked through the uh, second season of Making a Murderer in a couple of days. Uh, frankly, it, it wasn't that hard. I, I started watching the first episode or two, and then, just like last time, got hooked. I mean, they, um, you know, they, one of the things I liked, without getting into it too much, right. uh, that they start off right away with basically 
pointing the camera at themselves, Netflix and the documentarians, by basically saying, you know, look, there's a lot of people who are upset that we even did the first one and that so much attention <laughs> – uh, was put on this on the Avery family, and that he, yep. you know, and that he seemed like a victim, and the Brendan Dassey story, and the out, you know, the outcry, and the, I mean, j- just general response and uh, anger from the family and other people who you know think it was inappropriate. And I, I, I actually like that they started with that right away, saying, "Look, we know what we're doing. We know that by doing a second season, we're just." reopening this wound but damn is it entertaining and we know that people are going to watch this and be very involved and they will have an opinion one way or the other but they're going to have an opinion absolutely that first like five ten minutes was man i was just like wow people are crazy Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean the the protesting and the screaming and okay Sure, that's just kind of like baseline level crazy, but sending hate mail to either side, um, or sending quilts to uh, to either uh, side. Either side. <laughs> this, um, and I, I think one of the very first quotes I saw in there was just, um, kind of really struck home how much people don't understand how things work um it was just someone in the crowd said well if the if they've got nothing to hide meaning the police the prosecutors this the state then you know you got to give these guys retrials like, i'm not sure if you remember that quote right oh, no the I, I, but- I absolutely do and and you're a thousand percent right it it is People generally don't understand the criminal justice system. And we saw that actually in the first season quite a bit that this family, the Avery family, did not understand what was going on. And when you don't have money and, you know, advice and lawyers and, and, and such to advise you throughout this process. Uh, people get really caught up and don't know what to do. Um, and you're no. In fact, that's one of the things I liked about the second season was how much time they spent informing the viewer about the legal process, especially the appellate right. process. That that well, I'm sure we'll get to, but was really fascinating. And I learned learned a lot. And I I thought I knew quite a bit about the appellate process, having done post conviction cases. But I, I I really did learn a lot. It was definitely an interesting uh, season too. Uh, there were a couple times I had to to turn it off and put it away and walk away to <laughs> kind of breathe, because um, uh, there were a couple times where it kind of really you know got me going. But um, uh, I well, we'll be getting into it here. So, yes, we will. Um, I've got I've got like an order of things uh, to go through, so we can try to keep you know. Uh, there's lots of different topics and um it'd be almost impossible to do a podcast like this where we kind of go in the order of the episodes because yeah. some of the things are kind of mixed up and that's just the way it works storytelling wise for the documentary right um so uh, i'm gonna try to keep us on topics but i also have like seven pages of notes here and uh, uh i got a lot of quotes i just took uh directly from uh some of the people in the in the show uh especially Kathleen Zellner. We'll introduce her here in just a second um, that, uh, you know, we can, we can uh, comment on. So 
Yeah, this is a big burrito. So where do you want to where do you want to start taking the first bite? Well, let's let's ref, let's do a quick refresher of ourselves here. So okay. I went back and I also listened to our first go round in season one, and pulled out some of the uh, more specific things that we focused on yeah. from season one. So just to, to re- kind of refresh everyone who listened to those five episodes. We did five episodes already. This will be number six on this documentary. Okay, so the main things we talked about was uh, Stephen Avery's blood found in Teresa Halbach's car, the, the murder victim, mm-hmm. in six different places yep. uh, on the interior of the car. Uh, his DNA, not blood, but his DNA found... Uh, on the latch of the hood, kind of in the front of the car, underneath the hood, you know, the, you, not the pop, the hood popping thing from the inside, but the little latch you have to also unhook, uh, underneath the, the hood of the car. Which was not actually mentioned in the original documentary. So we, that exactly. was one, a thing that we had brought up, but, you know, I, I believe, you know, well, as you'll, as listeners will now know in the second season, of course, it becomes an in, uh, a very interesting <laughs> topic. Yeah, they, they talk about it quite a bit. Um, okay, so uh, the keys to the victim's car is found in Stephen Avery's, Avery's bedroom. Yep. Uh, a bullet from his gun uh, is found in his garage with her DNA uh, on the bullet. Yeah, and as I um, recall, um, with uh, the keys, there was concern that they were planted there by the police because there were right. photos that didn't show them, and then they show up later. You know, and and I think I even remember having this crazy theory that I don't know that anyone has actually explored or talked about. But I had this flash of, what if he lost the keys? That's why he couldn't move the vehicle until he was able to get a tow truck to it. You know, in that mess of a bedroom, what if he misplaced them? And didn't know that he misplaced them in the bedroom. I right. thought he maybe lost them somewhere, anywhere on the property. That I mean, it's, it could be such a hu- a simple human answer to set them down. They fell behind a bookcase or fell inside of something, and now he's lost them and he doesn't know where they are. And during the search, they get knocked, they get moved, they fall, they you know whatever. There was just it was just such a simple thing that I remember proposing. And then, and then the other thing with the bullet was that there was concern about the DNA and that some tests have failed, that it was essentially below some of their testing thresholds, but they still had decided to report. That appeared to be an, a bit of an anomaly in their system, but given the importance of the evidence, they felt that breaking their normal procedures to report this below threshold result was imperative for this case, which... I believe we explored and talked about it and said, yes, it's unusual, but in crime labs, it can happen as long as it's documented and you right. know, ap- appropriately addressed. Um, also, we mentioned, uh, we talked briefly about how his DNA was found on uh, the little buckle part of her keys. But we also said that that really didn't mean a whole lot since it was found in his house. It could have also gotten on there just from being on his floor. Sure. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, Brandon Dassey, the the other suspect in this case, and how it, while much of his confession has lots of questions about it, and we'll get into that later. We're just going to focus on Stephen Avery part of it first. Um, he, his he did say some things that kind of made sense, like 
uh, how her body was put into the back of the RAV4, her own vehicle, and then taken back out. Yeah. We also talked about how his confession didn't make any sense in relation to things happening in the bedroom, right? Uh, where she was uh, allegedly uh, raped and cut, because uh, there's just no blood evidence in there at all. Yeah, I, I, but, I remember we neither of us we believe neither of us believed that that happened, and that no, you know, not at all. That there are elements that he was saying that we, you and I, simply just didn't believe, and it didn't fit with the forensic evidence and what we would expect with forensic evidence. But other parts of his confession referring to the garage did make a whole lot more sense. But they're also somewhat problematic. Right. And there was even the um, thing that wasn't discussed in the series was that when they found the clothes, when they collected the clothes that he was wearing from the day of her uh, her murder, uh, there were bleach stains at the bottom of the cuffs. And, right. and, I, and I seem to recall somewhere in one of the documents, and maybe a listener knows exactly where, but I remember somewhere that the investigators were concerned that there was a smell of chemicals in the garage, that they had smelled what smelled like. And I've been to enough crime scenes where you know that when you walk into a freshly cleaned up crime scene that there, you know, there is a strong smell of bleach and other cleaning agents. And I, and that would fit with the, the stains on the pants, bleach, cleaning up, why there was no DNA or blood if, in fact, if, in fact, she was shot in the garage. So the last couple of things we talked about was the EDTA test. So Brendan, De- Brent, Stephen Avery's theory about how his blood got all over the car was that it was planted there by the police and that they got uh, blood from a blood tube where uh, he had been tested back in the 90s and they had uh, extracted the blood from this tube. There was even a little pinprick hole in the top of the rubber stopper uh, and then put that into the car. However, those tubes use a chemical called EDTA to keep it from clotting and uh, that would theoretically be testable on the blood samples the FBI tested it, found no EDTA, so kind of ruled out that part of the conspiracy theory. And then finally, less on the forensic sides, but you know, maybe a phone forensics, There, we talked a little bit about how uh, Stephen Avery used Star 6-7 when he was calling to get these pictures taken and get the victim, uh, Teresa, to come over to his house. All right, so uh, moving into now season two. Uh, I wanted to start off with, uh, first with just kind of overall impression of this new cast of characters. Um, so just kind of go through and uh, establish who everybody is. Um, so first off, uh, Stephen Avery. So just If someone's coming in at this point late in the game, uh, well, spoilers, I guess. But uh, so Stephen Avery was uh, in the 80s uh, accused and convicted of sexual assault. Uh, it was later found to be not true, and DNA evidence exonerated him. He was released, and then a couple of years later was accused of killing Teresa Halbach and is still in prison for her murder. Uh, Teresa Halbach obviously being the victim here in this case. Brendan Dassey is Stephen Avery's nephew. The Avery clan are just a lot of people living on or near a salvage yard in rural Wisconsin. Uh, Brendan Dassey was 15 or 16 at the time of the murder, uh, was uh, tried for being a um, accomplice and is also uh, still in prison for that, uh, mainly based on his confession. There is no physical evidence that links him to 
uh, Teresa Hallback's rape or murder, which is what they're both um, uh, charged and uh, and convicted of. But his confession uh, is what was used to uh, to put him into prison. So next up is uh, Kathleen Zellner. Uh, so Kathleen Zellner is now Stephen Avery's new attorney. And uh, she has made a name for herself by having, uh, in the documentary, it says 17 other people uh, exonerated, a lot of them uh, based on new DNA evidence, and uh, you know, released from prison. And now she's hoping to make uh, Stephen Avery uh, number 18 on her list of you know exonerated uh, people that have been wrongly accused of uh, of a crime. Yeah, I, I gave a presentation in New York uh, to uh, essentially the Innocence Project and you know defense attorneys, and uh, Jerry Buting, one of his Stephen Avery's attorneys. Uh, the first trial. Yeah, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, who now I've actually met both of them. And Buting gave a presentation at, at this. And, you know, he had even mentioned Kathleen Zellner and he had said, you know, he, you know, we're no longer representing him. He has a new attorney, Kathleen Zellner. And as soon as he said the name, there was this murmur of approval throughout the room. And they all oh, know boy. her. They all, they all know her. They know that, well, as I'm sure we'll get into, she is, quite fierce she is quite an yes. advocate and uh she's very good at her job in what she does specifically but um, we'll we'll talk she may not be as accurate as we like from the forensic aspect but she right. it, she is she is good at what she does in that she is a zealous advocate for her client well okay so that's what i wanted to partly on, on this introduction here is to to get kind of first impression so is, was was that kind of your you know impression initial impression and then kind of as the series goes on as it evolves impression of her it is is that it sounds like you've heard of her that was her reputation after watching the season two did that hold up with uh, your expectations oh yeah i for me it, for me it did uh she she immediately went on my short list of oh that's who i want representing me <laughs> that be if I could afford her, which of course I can't, uh, she, right, right. Uh, she, she has, she has that level of zealous, zealousness that, yeah, I mean, she will do everything she can, uh, overturn every single stone. And one of the things I liked about her was how she kept basically saying, I don't care where this goes. Uh, and and as we'll we'll get to it um, at some point. I mean, she really. Okay. I mean, she really upsets the apple apple cart a little bit later. The the Avery apple cart, well, if you will. Yes. Um. But she. Um. You know, she she keeps saying, you know, I you don't want me to do these tests if you are actually guilty of this because in the end, if I am able to prove that you did this or this goes against you. This is not going to be good. And, you know, she kept playing that card a lot, which, I mean, yes, she did. For, for better or worse, I like that she did that. I like that she attempted to scare people a little bit around her. Um, assume, and I, I actually assumed that she believes this, that don't hire me, don't make me do these tests if you're actually guilty. Because in the end, if I find out that these tests implicate you, you're screwed. And I, 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 I like that approach. Well, okay. Um, so my, this is, again, this is my just personal impression of her. I did not believe her at all. Mm -hmm. I thought that entire thing was a complete act. 
and that she it, it every single time she said it i thought she was lying through her teeth interesting and i she to me she came across as completely untrustworthy publicity hungry <laughs> well that yeah, yeah only a- the money <laughs> um, part of that is because she just totally ignored his uh, request for, to take on his case for over four years. And then as soon as Making a Murderer came out, like the next month, she responded and said, I'm in. And I, my, again, my opinion is that she took that on solely so that she could be the star. And she is by far the star of this documentary. She has the most screen time, the most uh, dialogue in the, in the uh, show. This documentary basically became about her and not about Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't get that. I mean, no, I mean, I got the publicity hungry, but I mean, she clearly has a pretty powerful law firm and fairly well to do. I don't know that she actually needed it for the money. In fact, I'm guessing by taking it pro bono, she, she lost money on this. And oh, that- I, I think that she knows that she is going to make millions off of the, of taking this case. Well, that in the, the other cases, the 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 level of her fame is going to rise so high. I mean, who knows? She may even be getting a just with the amount of screen time. I wouldn't be surprised if she was getting a cut of the Netflix money on this. <laughs> um, That's but, interesting. And then the speaking tours that she can take on now for the rest of her life. She's making money off of this case. This is not a a. Um, her cars are too nice. Her clothes are too nice. Her plastic surgery is too nice for <laughs> her. To to uh, to not be making a shit ton of money off of this. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I, I get it as it's an investment. I and she will eventually it will pay off for sure. Uh, right. With other, I, yeah, but I mean, throughout this, I don't. Um, I mean, I, I take I take your point. I it didn't it didn't bother me as much. Uh, she's opportunistic, but what good lawyer isn't? I mean, you know. And then part of the reason that uh, I didn't believe her on, you know, whatever evidence we find, if it implicates you, you know, we're it's not going to end up good for you. Well, you would look at the evidence that she put forth in this documentary, and good lord, the conclusions that she draws from from this are just they're insane. Well, that's that's uh, what if, that's what I want to get to. I mean, some of the if, yeah. Some of that stuff if she is was crazy. like, okay, let's do the test and then objectively look at it to see whether or not it uh, supports you know your innocence or your guilt. A lot of the stuff that she was saying, she wouldn't be able to say. It, yeah. it, she may be saying that she's going to be you know if the evidence comes back against you, it's going to be bad for you. But that did not bear out with the tests that she performed and then the things that she said after doing those tests. Yeah, I mean th- that that I think we're on the same page is that her interpretations of and the wild leaps of well this test showed this okay and then the wild leaps that she takes and where that goes and you know i'm sure we'll get into these in the moment here i mean yeah i mean right. there were these moments cringeworthy moments for me of if if the reverse was true if the prosecution had made those sorts of leaps if the prosecution had you know, the kinds of tests and the kinds of results that she had and then made the sort of leaps and then charge, let's say, a different person with this crime on those. Right. And she was defending that person. She would say, this is the most insane case. You've got no real proof. 
these tests don't show. I mean, if, if if somehow you could get her to look at it from the other side of if this was the prosecution's evidence that she was generating her own stuff, some of it's right. just it's it's so out there and outlandish that I mean it's hard. It's a little hard to swallow. So why don't we? You want to cover a few well, of those? Uh, a couple other people, real quick, uh, to to introduce, and we'll jump right in. Yeah. Okay. Um, next up would be uh, Laura Nyrider. Uh, mm. So she is the uh, she's the one taking on Brendan Dassey's portion of it, uh, and she works for oh, I didn't write this down. The, the, basically, the institute that uh, argues against uh, using confessions of um, juveniles. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something conviction. like the Institute for Wrong Wrongful Convictions um, of Youth, or of, something of like youth that. Or something. Yeah, I uh, go ahead. Sorry, and and uh, again. I, I felt that the in the documentary, I'm not sure if they meant to do it, but she came across to me as um, an extremely honest, passionate, reasonable, in it for the cause uh, attorney, and I think the world of her after seeing the documentary. Wow. Again, I'm not sure if they set that up as like a, a contrast uh, between these two attorneys and why they're in it, but um, I. I, I think the world of her. That's interesting. I thought she was lying and conniving and in it. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I know, I, Eric, I, I, I have to say, I, I kind of got a crush on her. She, she is so adorable. And I, I just, I, I fell in love with her passion and her advocacy. And you're right. It's a very different kind. There's a certain naivete and innocence to it. Yeah. Whereas, uh, Kathleen's much more calculating and, and, very experienced, really experienced through trial and litigation, and it is, and she she is a surgeon in how she approaches this and knows how to to work the media aspect and all these things. Huh. Whereas Laura is just just that fresh doe doughy eyed lawyer that you know, although you know, ten years throughout all of this. Uh, somehow maintains a smile and a positive attitude uh, throughout yeah. the entire thing, af- with setback after setback after setback. Now, I, I have to admit, I, 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 I had a got, got a little crush on her. Uh, very much a Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of vibe. Yeah. Then uh, next up, Ken Kratz is back. Uh, so he was the prosecutor in the original trial. Uh, he's not a main participant, but I did want to to bring him up because he. He kind of puts himself into the story a few times. Uh, he's been on a lot of um, uh, panels, being interviewed. It, it's funny how how you know I've got from just from watching this documentary these very strong views. But uh, I, to me, my opinion on him is he comes across as a total slime ball <laughs> uh, that I wouldn't trust to walk my dog. From the clips they replayed of him from the original trial to seeing uh, some of his speaking engagements, um, I I couldn't stand that guy. He just just really got under my skin in a creepy kind of way. Yeah, well, and, and then there is the whole ethics violation that caused him to resign yep. from his position, which I mean they they covered. They reminded people of why he's no longer prosecuting, but I mean he never brings it up and it never comes up again. Although, did you see? A side point. Um, yeah. Did you see the moment where he and his new love interest are walking into the? I think it was the appellate court in Chicago, and she's right for no fair- reason, just to be in front of the yeah press. Yeah, and but this love interest is fairly young and fairly attractive, and I went, 
Well, that's surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I uh, I agree. I agree. All right, so then finally, uh, Dean Strang and Jerry Booting, you mentioned them before. They were uh, Stephen Avery's trials in the original case. Uh, he had money from uh, the settlement with the state from the wrongful conviction earlier, so he was able to hire two really, you know, fairly well-known uh, attorneys from Wisconsin. And uh, so in the beginning, you see that they've been on the talk circuits. They've been doing speaking engagements. They do nationwide tours. Yeah, that's how I know, how we met them, too, uh, through exactly. those, those tours. Uh, and now, though, uh, because one of the only ways to get post- post-conviction relief is to say you had inadequate uh, counsel during the first trial, Kathleen Zellner is all about finding any aspect of the case that they didn't do perfectly and uh, you know blaming the conviction on them despite them both being very good attorneys as well yeah you know that was the hardest part for me to stomach although i loved when they were interviewing them and that they continued to agree to be a part of it and there's a really nice moment where dean strang says she kathleen has to she has to say these things about us to be able to make this case and that's fine We'll take we'll take the bullet for the team here. That's okay. We in our heart of hearts know we did everything we could to defend him with everything that we had at the time, and that's that's fine. We'll we'll take that in, in the interest of you know um, his post conviction appeals. We we get that, and I thought that was so gracious and just Absolutely. speaks of their character, which I loved both of them the first time. Uh, they only have one small little issue with with how they did, but you can find that in the, our previous episodes. But otherwise, I they were great, and and when I met them in real life too, they um they were open to criticism and talking and having a conversation about improving the system and forensic science and how it's communicated. They were they're both. They're both good guys. They're both smart attorneys, and I, you know, I was nice. To, it was nice to see them in the. I thought these these episodes, and they, like I said, they they were very gracious about it. All right, so let's jump into uh, the forensics now. We've we can set aside our subjective emotions about the people involved and actually get into some of the the forensics. Uh, so first thing, even in the first episode, I was real surprised how quickly they jumped right into things. Uh, but they bring in a, a bloodstain pattern evidence guy uh, named Stuart James. And yeah, then, I, lo- I love uh, Stuart James. He's uh, he's a he is a good guy and a legend in the field. I think even Bart yeah. Bart might have mentioned him in his episode. Okay. He's a he's a you know a, a guy that I, I can't remember if he said it or not, but if, if Bart's because Bart isn't really taking cases anymore, uh, he right. often refers them to Stuart James. So that should tell you something about the level of respect given how Bart Epstein is. Uh, that that's his go-to referral. Okay, I was going to ask you about that because I know you you've got a lot more connections and and training in the field along those lines because I. I I you know listened to him on the on the uh, in the in the show, read his report that uh, is available online, and definitely came away with some questions. Um, so in just kind of like the initial discussion you see in the show with uh, Kathleen Zellner interviewing uh, Stuart James and and Bloom, uh, it seems like they're insisting that there would have to be blood found on the steering wheel, the gear shift, the hood release, the door handles, the hood latch. All of these places, there would have to be blood, and since there isn't, 
that uh, that means something uh, that the blood was planted. Uh, I think the quote is, the dots aren't connected. They're yeah. in different books. <laughs> I thought that was really, I don't know, it just struck me as a really overreaching statement, especially from uh, experts in the field. I, I, mean, I can think of multiple different explanations as to why there would only be blood in certain places and not yeah. all over. Yeah, I, I, I did too. In fact, when I started... When, because that you're right, they start the series with, with both of those guys. Here was my first reaction was, what was just edited before the questions were posed to these guys? What was cut out? Because let's say that they were in a room and Kathleen Zellner says to them, let's go off the assumption that he is actively bleeding and that he has a, a fresh cut and he is actively bleeding throughout this. What would okay. you expect? Because every part of their answer seemed to refer to if he was actively bleeding. True. So having not been there and not knowing or, you know, not you know, not knowing all the presumptions, their answers fit what you would expect with an active bleeder. If you had an active bleeder, all those things would be true based on what they said. On the other hand, like you just said, there's plenty of reasons to suspect that he may not have been actively bleeding at the time. Uh, there, you know, he had talked about even throughout the series that he had had a cut, which mysteriously reopened right around the time of this crime, but never, he didn't know how it reopened some other thing, you know, some other things about it. Uh, I, I had to put that aside with a little grain of salt of it felt edited to me. That's what it felt like. And without knowing the whole thing, if you had asked a bloodstain pattern expert, assume you have an active bleeder would this make sense would you expect this then their answers were were true but like you said there's other alternatives well uh so this is a quote now from uh zellner uh, the cut on the first joint of his middle finger had made the blood stain pattern by the ignition and that he'd done that naturally as part of turning the key well that's ludicrous because once you get in the car and put the ignition key in and you turn it you're two inches away from that stain uh, yeah and but wasn't that what the prosecutor proposed in the trial Right, right. So that's, um, so then she follows it up, says, well, you could get in that car and do that a thousand times with blood on your finger and you'd never make that mark. And now, again, this is not the expert. This is Kathleen Zellner saying that. Right. Uh, I don't know. I, I would say that you're getting into an unfamiliar car and I do this all the time in rentals. I don't know exactly where the ignition is. I just jab the key in the wrong spot and all of a sudden my finger's touching the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the front there or I'm taller than this lady. So. Not that Steve Avery is all that tall, but so my hand's closer than I would expect it to be. I, I can think a lot of reasons why yeah. I would say, hey, you get in that car, you got blood on your finger. You, when you put the key into the ignition, your finger's only two inches away from that surface. You could easily touch it in the process of turning on the car. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't dispute that at all. I, I could easily imagine different scenarios where your hands are sweaty and you're nervous and it slips right off the key and you bang it into the dashboard. I, I can think of a, a thousand ways that could happen. I right. think her point, and this is, this is what I had to recalibrate my brain, was that she took all the theories of the prosecutor and all the things that were presented at trial to show that they were wrong. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Something else similar didn't happen, but just however they presented at trial or in the you know the first case, she wanted to show that it didn't happen exactly that way. That's how I took that. 
But still, that gap of two inch- inches, she seems to be now taking as proof of yes. uh, the police planting evidence. Then and that's it. That's that's the big issue is you're absolutely right. There's another way to do it. She has now jumped to and therefore they planted it. Which I think is way overreaching. Uh, no uh, doubt. No doubt. Okay. Uh, because what we're basically talking about and getting it back to the forensic science is activity right. level propositions. And, you know, you have source level, and we're not disputing the source of it. It's his blood. You have activity level, and it's the manner in which it was deposited. So let's say that she is able to disprove that it didn't happen exactly the way the prosecution presented in the first one, that it was bleeding. He turns the key, strikes the dashboard, and makes a contact stain. That's what they presented in the first one. Okay. So it didn't happen exactly that way. Maybe, like you said, he's looking for the um, the thing. Or maybe at some point he had accidentally hit the, the windshield wipers and was reaching to turn them off. What if he's turning off the radio? I mean, there could be a, a, a thousand other scenarios. And, there, and we don't have enough data. But to say that, therefore, someone planted that is just nonsense. From a forensic standpoint, it's just nonsense. I mean, it, it, it doesn't I, I, prove it any more than its presence or absence. Right. Whether or not it happened during turning on the car or it happened uh, some other way, I, I still think that the, the location of that stain uh, doesn't rule out any of those options. It, yeah. It, his blood, you know, the source, like you're saying, being there is, you know, very strong evidence, uh, but the location of it doesn't really mean uh, anything in one way or the other. It, it could mean that he did it while turning on the car, even though there's a gap of two inches, because there's only a gap of two inches. Yep. But it could also mean that he got it there some other way. You, you can't tell from the forensics right. the, the activity. activity that that left that stain there. You just can't. It, it's not something you can reliably tell from just that part of the evidence. Yeah, other than that it appears to be a contact stain. Right. Right. Uh, okay, so then uh, move back. Uh, James then does more experiments uh, at the rear of the car because uh, now there's there's Teresa Halbach, the victim's blood, on the inside of the rear door. So this is like a, a RAV4. It's a small SUV, and the back door opened up, not up like a like a minivan, but sideways uh, uh, out to one side. Yeah, it swings out and, to the, the right. I used to have a RAV4. Yeah, swings out towards the passenger side. The hinge is on the passenger side uh, right. of the of the vehicle, and there is uh, you know, blood spatter inside the car there. And they, Kathleen Zellner buys another of uh, that same model Rav Four, same color even, and uh, puts up paper and tries to recreate the the blood spatter on the inside of that door because uh, in testimony the uh, forensic expert for the state. In the original trial, Stalky testified that this blood appears to have been flung off or released from a bloody object. Essentially cast off stain. And that's the thing is he doesn't say cast off. Uh, he says... Um, flung from an object that is moving with force or velocity. Flung from, or yes, uh, flung off or released from a bloody object. It's consistent with a bloody object such as a body being loaded into the rear end of this vehicle. Yeah. And... Uh- so they, they focus on that. They, and they kind of, they focus on the word flung, right? 
So they, and they kind of pivot with it. So they don't just kind of take the general statement of consistent with the body being loaded into the back of the vehicle and they change it to, well, she, you know, he says that she was flung into this vehicle. So they try to recreate a flinging motion for this body and they fail to create the same kind of uh, blood spatter pattern. Uh, So you're you're more the expert on this. So go ahead and Make some comments on what you thought about that. So when I saw, I mean, look, I will. I have to admit this: I had never seen the door of the Rav Four. I knew that there were stains throughout the vehicle, and I had seen a crime scene sketch and saw that there were a little, you know, stains, tiny stains, you know, in the sketch right. showing on the back door. But I had never seen a picture of the back door until the second um, second season. Here, I have to say, as soon as I saw that pattern, I went, "Oh." That that does not fit with this scenario, and that does not look like stains flung from hair or a body. I, as soon as I saw the stains, before they even got into the additional testing that Stuart James did, I went, that's surprising. That looks like a spatter pattern. And now I'm starting to think, well, was the door closed and she was still alive and being beaten in the back of the vehicle? And I'm, I'm running through the different scenarios of how you could get that. And then, then I'm going, well, no, the angle's not quite – that doesn't make sense. There wouldn't have been enough distance. She would have been, I mean, by all accounts, dead because there would have been more blood if she's moving around. Did the, you know, the killer or killers have blood on their hands when they were moving and they flung their hand? I'm not, I mean, now I'm going through all these different scenarios, but when I saw that stain pattern, it didn't fit. And as soon as in the episode, Stuart James starts attempting to recreate and he puts, like you said, the white, white, uh, paper up there and then starts, uh, basically with a body on the ground, a mannequin on the ground with blood loaded, you know, they try to load the body into the vehicle. And I, I, I appreciate that they waited it appropriately and they tried to get right. it. They, they couldn't get anything like it. And it, and of course, it, because it doesn't look like it, that's the mechanism. But then when they did a beating mechanism on the ground behind the vehicle and they were able to create a somewhat similar pattern, I have to admit, I went, oh, that... um that fits a lot more. And okay, well, let me, I, 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 let me ask a couple of questions then, because uh, I had I had a couple other thoughts. But my first thought was the way they were loading her into the vehicle seemed to really be focused on this word "flung," flinging someone in, and, and it just doesn't seem like that's how you would put someone in a car. What uh, my first thought was that well it's obvious that she's not going to create any kind of blood spatter that kind of pattern if she goes in head first right it's if she's loaded in feet first yeah and then you know maybe even the door being partially closed her head which you know the evidence does suggest that she was shot in the head yeah uh so you've got to imagine a lot of blood there uh, around the head area yeah. is kind of dropped down or thumps onto the 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 floor of that back seat could, couldn't that then radiate out that kind of pattern onto that back door? Uh, so I, I thought about that as well, but the angles don't make sense. Uh, they simply don't make sense. They would have been much more angular. Uh, it, it, it just simply doesn't fit. And I don't know that there would still have been enough force of dropping it down. Plus, you'd expect stains in the back and and they would have perhaps radiated out in other directions too. It just it doesn't fit. It does, doesn't look like that would have been... They, in fact, they look exactly like Stuart James showed. 
project uh, coming from an area below, just below, and moving upwards a bit. And the the kinds of stains that he produced were were much more similar in pattern type, where it made me begin to think, well, was she shot in the head near the back of the vehicle? And that's a, a product of the larger stains. But I'm not even sure about that at, at this point. Um, was right. she was she beaten in some way near the the back of the vehicle? Uh, you know, they actually approach it and they try a different weapon. They try a hammer and produce you know that kind of cast off that you know would would fit that closer in the scenario. And I, I will tell you this, and I, and this will be a common theme you're going to hear from me. Okay. Although I don't believe a lot of her leaps that she made, that Kathleen Zellner made, like the crazy leaps of, well, this was planted and, well, obviously this guy had to have done this or this is – I don't believe that. What she made me think based on some of their experiments was maybe it didn't happen exactly that way. Now, Kathleen Zellner says if it didn't happen that way for this thing, then the whole thing begins to unravel. And therefore, once you can tug at the threads and show that this thing wasn't true, then everything else is not true. And I went, oh, no, no, BS. That's totally BS. Not, right. That's that's crap. That's a lawyer making uh, making her defense case. Although what she's doing, and I kept thinking, oh, yeah, if they retried this, she's going to get reasonable doubt. She will absolutely create reasonable doubt because the prosecution is doing what we did or what we saw in um, the staircase is they tie themselves to a particular theory of how something happened. And then if she can show that it didn't happen that way, that's reasonable doubt. You and I are logical forensic scientists, and we go, okay, well, it didn't happen exactly that way. Maybe it happened this way. But it still happened, and it still happened from these people. And right. that's that's my thing. It doesn't doesn't change the source. It changed the activity. And that's so, – as long as we keep that distinction, I – okay, the, so maybe the, the vehicle was in the garage – when she was being shot, or maybe she was beat a couple of times. Maybe there was something else happening that I hadn't thought of before, but the evidence, I have to admit, that she explores is not the original scenario that was presented. And I, I thought she disproved several different elements, which I thought she did a great job of exploring. So the I guess my problem with this side is is it reminds me very much I'm glad you brought up the staircase because it reminds me very much of Dwayne Deaver's experiments in the staircase. Yes. And yes. I I I made that note too, man, that Yeah. Our yeah. our main criticism of that and I, I think rightly so the criticism that a lot of you know the people that were very much critical of Dwayne Deaver in that case was that he was doing these experiments to reproduce a very specific certain result. Yeah. He was trying to say, okay, could I stand over uh, a body, uh, strike down on it with a blow poke and have blood come up my shorts? And he did it until he produced that result. Yeah. And in this scenario here, it was like, okay, I'm going to try loading in the body uh, head first in a flinging motion. That doesn't reproduce the result. All right, let me try hitting her in the head and have a cast off behind me. That produced the result. End of story. Now, yep. again, we don't know what other experiments may have been done. Cut it doesn't even from right. the report. It doesn't show anything right. in James's report. Uh, but I'm just like, well, I don't know. Could, 
What about trying other methods? If you if you have a body in the back bleeding quite a bit from the head and you go down yeah. uh, a dirty, you know, rocky, bumpy road, is is that gonna uh, do something? Or if um, now that's like a clever now that's a clever theory. In, that that yeah, is like, something that 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 actually is really clever. That if there was blood on the inside and it was bouncing up and down, could that have produced that? Although I still. I'm thinking that I'd have to see, I have to see the stain pattern. That I have to see the angles of everything to to but that's an interesting proposition. So I'm just like, well, I, I don't know. You didn't do enough like just like Dwayne Deaver, you didn't do enough experiments uh to really come to something conclusive. It's like you, yeah. you left it you set up this argument of flinging tore that down, but that's not that wasn't the important part of it. Uh, again, going back to what Stalky testified to, he testified that it was uh, the the stain there was consistent with a bloody object being loaded into the back of a car. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I'm, let me let me jump in for a little bit here. Um, two things: what Stuart James did, his experiments are typical of what the profession would do. What Devers did was typical of what the profession would do. That's why I, I made some comments about. Uh, was it Bevel and uh, Sutton who were kind of ganging up on him a little post-review saying, well, these experiments are ridiculous and so on and so forth. And I, I, I think I made the comment on the show. No, actually, they're kind of typical for exactly what the profession would do. And, you know, Stuart James explored several scenarios. Did he explore all of them or these other alternatives? No, he explored these. The second thing being is that you said that the state's analyst who testified said Stalky, consistent. Yeah. yeah, he said consistent with. And you know that this has always been my bete noir, and I always come back to this, and I hate this term. Uh, when bloodstain pattern analysts say consistent with, usually it's because the prosecution will go, well, could it have been consistent with this? And they go, yes. And then they've proven their case without having to prove in their case. So right. I don't know him particularly. I don't know if he meant that. But he certainly supported the prosecution's theory that, yes, it was consistent with exactly that kind of thing. I I will wager that he probably meant that he wouldn't rule uh, – if you asked him, could you rule out any other mechanism for that? No, I, I can't rule out any other mechanism, but it certainly Got is it. consistent with this one. So they use consistent a lot to be able to say, yep, that's that's – one reasonable explanation for how that got there, but I'm not ruling out or even going to discuss there are other, other mechanisms. ways too. Right. Uh, so, uh, reading through James's report, uh, it kind of uh, chuckled because this has come up as a topic for us before. Uh, he's got a series of paragraphs, and every single paragraph, as far as I can remember, I'd have to go back and double check, but just about every paragraph includes the phrase to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. And I was just like, Oh my goodness. Um, that's it's, he's, he's old. He's a little old old school. school. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But which is this thing. If you're listening freshly to this episode, we've discussed it before. It is a series of words that mean nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're, there is no such thing as a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. That's it's just not a thing. Uh, but courts would ask these questions, and forensic scientists would say, "Yeah, sure." And uh, 
it's it's still, as we can tell, uh, still around. You know, although one point is that in Florida, it's more of a thing. You'll actually find it in a lot of Florida cases. Really? Be- yeah, because somewhere in their law, some judges declared that that means something there. So you'll actually see it a little bit more in Floridian case case law. Uh, So I thought it was also really interesting that just to kind of finish off Stuart James here, he made, he did make a comment and then also in his report that the, uh, the needle hole in the rubber tube of the, the blood tube that was such Mm -hmm. a big deal in the first season and in the original case, he says, nope, not a thing. That's totally consistent with what you would expect to find in a blood tube, just like you had said in the original uh, episodes when we talked about this, and basically set Kathleen Zellner away from the theory that the blood in the car came from this blood tube. Yeah, yeah he, look, I, I have a lot of respect for Stuart James. He's very reasonable, and I and honestly, I, I, I liked the work, again, the typical of the profession that they explored, you know, the proposed scenarios and maybe didn't explore others, but that wasn't his task, um, but showed that it may not have happened the way the state had proposed it at trial. And, in fra- and frankly, I, I don't think it did. After seeing those the, that stain pattern and their experiments on top of it, I, I, I was convinced, yep, I don't think it happened the way the state proposed it, but it didn't mean that those actors weren't involved in a different activity. Right. And we kind of talked about this a lot in the first, uh, our first episodes because we, again, a big part of the case and heck, even the charges included sexual assault. And we saw no evidence of that occurring at all and think that that kind of whole part was all just made up. So, yeah, uh, agree. Her being in the bedroom, sexually assaulted, handcuffed to the bed, cut, you know, while with, in the With uh, no the DNA. Bedroom. With no DNA on the bed or the handcuffs, I mean, all that kind of I, like that is crazy to me that char- being charged and convicted essentially for rape without any physical evidence that you basically have Das's right. testimony, which suggests that Avery did these things, but then we question you know Dassey's testimony. The first, I agree. I mean, all that stuff. There is simply no physical evidence. I mean, that is just as possible. As uh, some crazy other scenario of there being a um, black magic ritual that was going on and that she was sacrificed <laughs> for that in honor of Halloween because it was you know Halloween. Uh, right, th- right, that is yeah. just as likely as her being raped given the forensic evidence. Uh, so I, I liked you just mentioned uh, he did what he was asked to do because that also really struck me. I remember from the first season or from our, our research or our first initial discussion part of that was uh, the other blood in the back of the rav4 uh, exhibited uh, a, a contact stain correct me if i'm getting any of the terms wrong here of uh, hair onto the inside uh, of the in the rear of the vehicle and uh, Stuart james wasn't asked to review that part at all he was just asked to review the yeah. blood up next to the ignition and then the blood on the inside of the back door, uh, but not the hair transfer stains uh, in the inside kind of cargo area of the RAV4. No, I, Eric, I mean, it, it's a good point. I, again, we don't know 
Well, was it in his his affidavit that he didn't nope. look at those things? So it just wasn't discussed at all. So we don't know if he looked at it or was wasn't asked to. But if it wasn't in the affidavit, then I'm, maybe he wasn't asked to look at it all together. Exactly. So, all right. So then Kathleen is very, um, what's the word? Strategic. Selective. Selective. Oh. <laughs> strategic. Okay. Uh, in in you know what she is having him look at. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's what an advocate does. She does not have to be unbiased. In fact, she she is not unbiased. <laughs> right. All right. So now would be a good time to give a little love to our sponsor. And that sponsor would be Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. Idemia has launched a new product called Case Aphis. It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship NBIS matching algorithms. It's totally standalone, doesn't need to connect to your main Aphis or internet, no security, no firewall issues, no permission from your CGIS. It is completely portable and for the latent print examiner it lets you basically solve complex and difficult cases by searching latent prints from the crime scene against known prints elimination prints etc from that specific case the tool will improve your casework efficiency and reduce erroneous exclusions learn more about idemia and case aphis by contacting us at info.usa at idemia that's i-d-e-m-i-a dot com solve your cases faster today with case aphis and yeah thank you idemia for uh, continuing to sponsor the double podcast so i'm gonna read another quote here to you get your comment uh, on this so again from kathleen zellner all of steven's blood is in the front of the car all of Teresa's blood is in the back of the car that's a huge red flag <laughs> to whom <laughs> to, to whom I don't know. For me, that's not a red flag at all. That's that just happens. Um, and even more so, if there is going to be this grand conspiracy, and by the end, for all these pieces to fit together in a conspiracy, it would have to be grand with like you know Tony the Tiger level of grr. Oh my it. gosh! Yes. Um, why not put some of the blood? Mix some of the blood in with Teresa's blood. In my view. The fact that none of the blood comes together, that it's all separate, is evidence against a conspiracy. Because if I was a dirty cop trying to plant evidence, yeah, mix his blood in with her blood. That's, that's like lock away and never get, you know, pull out the key because I mean, that's like the best evidence you can get. Eric, that is such a great point. And I'm, I'm so glad you've started to unlock that a little bit because. And we'll get to the planting of things. I've got a quote that I want to, or a semi-quote I want to reference. But I agree. If this was actually a planted crime scene, it was pretty crappy. Um, (laughs) I don't know that they they would have done it the way I would have done it. And I completely, if you had access to all of these things that they clearly said they had access to, her, her blood, his blood, his DNA, her DNA from multiple sources, all these things, my God, they could have gone insane with actually planting. And they probably would have not really knowing how to plant evidence or what kinds of levels to look for, those sorts of – I mean I know we're going to get into levels and quantities and all that in a little bit. Right, but right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, 
And, and for all we know, uh, maybe if he was actively bleeding, her his blood was actually on her body, or and maybe something she was wrapped up in. But because it was burned, we'll never know. Uh, so it could have been in the back of the vehicle, but then was removed from the back of the vehicle. So along your lines of the framing, look, if I'm going for this, and they believe this, and they truly believe this, why don't they frame Brendan Dassey? Why don't they right. put her blood in the bedroom to go along with the story? Why don't they put Brendan's blood in the back of the, the vehicle? They would have got his stuff from DNA. There probably would have been instances where they would have had access to it when they're searching Brendan's room and trailer. They certainly could have had access to it at some point. Why not plant his DNA everywhere? Why? why and Absolutely. We, dis we discussed this in with respect to Furman in the OJ case. And the and the the risk that one takes when planting evidence exactly. so early That's in an investigation that what if she wasn't dead? They didn't know if she was complete and they didn't know that she had she was killed at this point when they're planting evidence early on. What if she was still alive and they they put all this evidence pointing towards Avery and she comes back and says, no, nah, he had nothing to do with it later. And I don't uh, that's impossible that hit you know, all these things. Uh, it is so risky for an investigator, especially as they're nearing the end of their career and their pension and these sorts of things, to be planting evidence early in the investigation like that. It's 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 insane to me. And and there's then accusations of planting evidence at the very end of the investigation. Uh, I think in April, by the time they get the DNA off the hood latch, right? And again, by that time, why not have Dassey's DNA? somewhere there's nothing no yeah. physical evidence at all for him yeah while you're at it and planting dozen pieces of evidence all over the property all over the car over the crime scene the garage throw him right. in there somewhere if you're really going to be planting the evidence and but like you're saying i think it's also not just really risky to do it but it's risky because what if you're not good at it you know <laughs> The theory again. We'll get back to it uh, here in a little bit, but of of the the DNA on the hood latch is that it came from a, a buckle swab. No, in no, no, a a groin swab because they eliminated the presence of amylase for saliva. So they were right. they were quote unquote sure it didn't come from a buckle swab. That was I th remember. I think I remember that being collected in November. Uh, like the week yeah. or two weeks after the, as soon, the crime? As soon as, no, as soon as they arrested him, which was... As soon as they arrested him. Yeah. Like, no, because like it, yeah, it November was a, 6th or 5th or something like that. Yes, it, it, because the hope was that he still had somehow her DNA on, you know, in his penis or somewhere. Somewhere around there, if they could have found her DNA, then they could have at least established the, the sexual assault. The sexual assault part. So then they held on to it. For six months yeah. and then planted it on the hood latch in April because that's the accusation. They planted it in April before uh, retesting there. And you were able to hold on to that evidence and not get anyone else's DNA on it when you're planting it. I mean, at that point, you've got all this blood evidence. You know you've got all this blood evidence. You know you found bones. You know you've got all this stuff. Why plant more DNA from groin swabs where it could have, you could have had some contamination and gotten something else in there. And then all of a sudden, you know, your whole case is shot 
after you've collected everything I, else I know, or planted it's, everything it's, else. It's crazy. It just it makes no sense. Yep. So uh, now I'm going to say one of my overarching themes, and I'll probably repeat this as well. So here's right. the first time I'm going to say this. This is like the JFK case to me. Basically, if you believe that the government, the CIA, the mafia, uh, the Cubans, the communists, and you know subversive elements have all come together for a crazy conspiracy and tampered with every single bit of evidence in a amazing collaboration where nobody is able to actually speak out and and all these people had to be all these moving parts and people had to come forward if you believe that then when you look at the actual evidence in the jfk assassination you go well yeah it's 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 a conspiracy if you accept the the more simple solution is that it happened just like this then that's the obvious solution, and there's only one shooter in the JFK case, and it was Lee Harvey Oswald, and it's open and shut. If you are Oliver Stone, and if <laughs> if Oliver Stone directs making a murderer, then there is no doubt that all of these conspiracies will come together. Because here, here's what I'm going to share with you. I know I'm jumping ahead just a little bit. There's a point where I had to laugh out loud where Kathleen Zellner says, well, look, if the killer plants the car on the property, and then the real killer plants the bones on the property, and then the cops plant the bullets, oh, and the keys in the room, and the DNA on the keys in the room, and they plant the DNA on the bullet, and they plant the blood in the car, and they plant the DNA under the... And I'm just under the latch. There's like seven, eight, ten different plantings that had to have occur. That's in, it's insanity. It's the same. It's the same insanity that people who believe the JFK case. And you go, there's no reasoning with you if you believe that is plausible. If you think the government is that good at doing <laughs> that kind of thing, which you and I work for government, it is not that competent. It is not that efficient. It's not that good. There is simply no way. I just I, I I can't buy it, and it's ludicrous to think. All of those things got planted and, and moved around and that there are up towards, I think when I counted, seven or eight different people involved in planting items. I'm sorry. That's – that you uh, – that is uh, a bridge Where too far. They would far. have to have gotten together, somehow organized this all super early on. Well, uh, to, well not the killers to... though. She thinks that that was just a uh, uh, an act of providence and chance that the killers were trying to plan it on Stephen Avery and the cops benefited well, from that. And so when they started planning evidence, so that's the only thing where there's no collaboration. But it's just uh, for you know it's it's fortunate for the actual killers because it diverts it away from them. Yeah. So the series does portray the very simple lives of these. Uh, rural Wisconsin people, the sheriff's deputies and police officers that, you know, supposedly did all this planting are these same backwoods Wisconsin folks. Again, no offense. I got nothing against backwoods Wisconsin folks, but this isn't like you're saying this, this isn't even the level of, well, the CIA does this kind of stuff right. all the time, run these, you know, false flag operations, you know, cause they're the CIA. This right. is backwoods Wisconsin podunk cops. You know, they're, they're, they're not CIA level operatives here. They're not, they're not the IMF mission impossible team here. That, that's not what we're talking about. Right, right. Okay. So. Again, now this actually kind of segues real nicely into the kind of the our wrapping up of the the bloodstain evidence portion uh, is the sink. So 
from his the very first day that Stephen Avery was arrested, and they sh- they show clips from the uh, the initial interrogation. Uh, he says that he had a cut on his finger that opened up and was bleeding into his sink, and he was tired and went to bed without cleaning it up. And he woke up the next morning, and all the blood was cleaned up. So he said they must have gotten my blood out of the sink and planted it in the vehicle and that's why his blood is in her vehicle uh so they they go they make a big vent out of going to the trailer and unbolting the sink uh she you know kathleen zellner had her little cadre of of uh, assistance with her to kind of to undo this thing and unbolt it from the wall and take it out did you notice all the flies all the little flies up in the corner of the window it was fairly disgusting yeah. <laughs> there were dead flies like everywhere in that trailer. Well, I, I can imagine that it's, it's been vacant for, you know, years yes. now. Yes. I don't, doesn't look like anyone's been living in it. Yes. Um, she, she even, even <laughs> goes and looks, <laughs> she, hey, look, she looked very uncomfortable. Door. Well, yeah. that too. Yes. No, she looked very uncomfortable. Is, uh, has been jimmied open. She didn't really come out and say it, but it seemed like she was suggesting that, hey, look, this back door has been jimmied open with this uh, nail puller here. So, you know, that kind of shows that someone broke into the house 10 years ago uh, to, right. I'm like, this has been vacant for a decade now. I don't know. It seemed obvious that someone else at some point has broken into this abandoned trailer in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin. As an explanation, since the blood tube didn't work out as evidence that uh, the the blood evidence in the RAV4 had been planted, uh, she now kind of pins her hopes to this disappearance of the blood from Stephen Avery's sink and then appearing in uh, the vehicle. So, again, I was really, again, maybe it was just she phrased it, is it? possible or plausible or is it at all a reasonable uh, explanation that the that blood dripped into a sink from an open wound could be pipetted out and then the pipette carried over to the vehicle and dripped into the vehicle to create these stains and i i was floored that james went along with this yeah, I, I wasn't flirty went along with it. I mean, I appreciated that he attempted. I will tell you this. I was curious about it and a bit surprised if it happened exactly that way, that they could get these flakes and that they could get this dried blood, reconstitute it. And oh, they didn't re- they didn't reconstitute anything. It was it was the liquid blood. I thought some of it they did. No, it was the dried flakes they they planted as flakes, and then the liquid blood they scooped up with the pipette and then repipetted onto oh uh, onto I, the surface. Because James or, or J- repipetted yeah. onto a, a Q-tip and then swabbed it onto the surface. Yeah, uh, but at some point James said that the blood would have been dried in the sink by the time someone came along to have collected it, and so that person would have had to have scraped into a tube reconstituted it to put the liquid blood. I mean, he, I I now I thought he addressed that it would have dried by the time that they would have come along. It it basically, and and that is true. He's right. It would dry in 30 minutes at room temperature. Um, you know, that all, in fact, Bart Epstein and Terry labor did those studies. Some man published on it. So that, and that was the correct drying time for that volume of blood for those conditions. So if they had come in, you know, I, I think the series proposed that they came the next day or that later in the evening or something, it would have been dried by then. They would have had to have taken flakes and then reconstituted it, 
I got the sense that that's exactly what they did. Okay. Uh, it, I, what I'm remembering is is he's drifted in there, and they're like, okay, we're going to have to wait. You know, it's going to take a little while for her to dry to kind of do the whole flake test thing. But right. And then she was like, well, what about now? Could you, could you just, you know, pipette it up right now? And he was like, oh, let me try. And he gets the pipette and goes right over there and, and sucks it up. And it's like, oh, yeah, look, I get a whole bunch. Anyway, the reason to talk about flakes and blood is that in the car, Stephen Avery's blood is found in flake form, uh, kind of underneath the center console or down on the ground near the center console area. And there's also then more of a transfer or drip uh, stains in other or liquid, you know, liquid blood that's now dried in other parts of the vehicle. And she says things like, it's preposterous that blood flakes <laughs> would be found in the center console area. I, I don't know. I just, I don't see how that's preposterous. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It's not preposterous. Although I, th- I, I liked that they did look at the stains, and this is exactly what I would have done, look at the stains on the dashboard to see if there were flaked areas from, you know, where yeah. there was a larger volume. And that I was not the same thing. And- that was not there. Yeah, it was not there. So the flakes couldn't have just fallen off of, you know, another area. So that, I, I, I agree with that. But now I'm thinking, okay, how did this scenario work? You've got the real killer or... If it was a separate team of evidence planters, separate from the killer, mm-hmm. sneak into his trailer. Yep. With looking, okay, let's see, let's see what what can we what evidence can we plant? Oh, hey, look, there just happens to be a blood a, a blood full of sink, a sink full of blood. Uh, so let's either pipette up or scrape up some of the dried blood here, and then we can go reconstitute some to put in all these areas, uh, take some of the flakes that we didn't reconstitute for some reason and just kind of drop them near the center console. I know. It it, it just it just seems so absolutely absurdly unbelievable. Not only that you would sneak in and go, "Oh, look at look how lucky we are that there just happens to be all this blood around that I can uh, yeah, you know, take they, over right, and transfer." How would they have known that there was even blood in the sink? And that he wouldn't clean it up, even if, oh, he's got a cut in his hand. Well, let's just see where we can find some of his blood. And he wouldn't have cleaned it up before getting tired and going to bed. And that, right. even if you, even if that all did happen, thinking ahead enough to go, "Oh, let's let's not just leave blood everywhere, but let's take some of these flakes and drop these." as well and then again like we said before not mixing it in with her blood uh which would you know be even more damning evidence i know i'm with you i and again if if i'm going to plant evidence why would i be going for something like that when i don't even know whose blood that is you don't know that that's stephen avery's blood what if it what if it wasn't what if it was some woman he was with or somebody else what what if it was someone else, and why would you go for that as opposed to his T-shirt or a knife or something from you know something that you know is his from the kitchen or his place, and then put that in there, and leave the T-shirt in the car because there's there should be no reason for the, his T-shirt to be something so obvious and physical as opposed to there are these unknown blood stains in the sink. I'm going to assume it's Stephen Avery and go through amazing <laughs> effort to collect them without contaminating them and, right. and then putting them all over the vehicle. It, and that's, it's, it's absurd. You know, we're fingerprint experts, right? If, if we as experts, right, we became suddenly evil and decided we were going to plant evidence of, you know, somebody at a crime scene 
it's one thing to plant a fingerprint, right? To to make the mold or to do all the things. And there's there's you know, yep. we would have to be extremely careful and, and just with all of our knowledge to not leave little clues that it was planted fingerprints. But even if when you plant a fingerprint, you can look at it and see you know, with certain lighting or in certain ways, see that, ah, oh, okay, I did a good job of planting the fingerprint here and I didn't leave any of my own fingerprints at the scene. You can't do that with blood or DNA. You'd have no idea if your DNA, you know, you got a piece of dandruff that fell off of your head and landed right in that, uh, in that flake and now you've mixed your own DNA into the scene. It, planting blood or DNA evidence is extremely risky for this c- contamination. And maybe, like you said, they're like, oh, well, then the people of the state lab who did the testing, maybe, you know, they did see the contamination of the police officer and they just hit all that. And then, like you said, well, you just kind of throw your hands up and, well, there's no real reasoning with, with someone who's going to believe all of these steps lined up to plant this evidence. Right. When you've got other really obvious macro evidence that wouldn't be missed, that could easily have been put there instead. All right, so we we did a little bit of introductions of of people. We get, we did our very unscientific opinions on on how they made us feel during the the first, the second season here, and we talked about the blood evidence. But uh, I think we gotta we gotta stop ourselves short for this first episode and save save some more for uh, episode two of the Double Loop Podcast coverage of season two of Making a Murderer. We're going to get into the, the DNA evidence now, other experts, uh, other suspects, and please just stick around uh, next week when that comes out. Uh, I do want to say that I think I'm going to start moving. Uh, I've, I've been trying and it's really, really infrequent, but I've been trying to, to focus back in on a Tuesday airing date for the WLIP podcast. I think I'm going to push that back to Thursday from now on. Uh, I think it's just going to work better with my schedule. So. I'll try to be really consistent like I was right in the beginning, uh, but look for every Thursday for the Double Loop podcast to to be coming out. All right, so Glenn, uh, what do you got uh, coming up? Remind the listeners to some of the classes you have soon. Sure. A new class uh, being hosted through RSNA and IDEMIA, where we're teaching people how to use a case APHIS and also uh, documentation tools and other technology. Uh, introducing technology in ACEV, that's January 8th through the 10th in Anaheim, California, and then an exclusion class with John Black that is April 29th through May 3rd in Baton Rouge, and lastly, an advanced ACE V applications course exploring the nuances of ACE V for experts. That's April 8th through the 12th, and that is in Hackensack, New Jersey. Brand new, uh, off the wire. Uh, by the time this airs, there should be flyers up online. But even right now, as I'm speaking, I need to get it up on my website now. Uh, I've got um, kind of a, a dual class coming out. So uh, next year, April 8th through the 12th, I'm going to be doing my updated exclusionology class. And that's exclusionology research and exercises from April 8th through the 10th. And then my new gyro and Photoshop class on April 11th and 12th. So this is going to have two classes combined in the same week in the same place, and that'll be in Cooper City, Florida. So I just had to look up real quick because I have no idea where Cooper City, Florida is. Uh, Glenn, any any guesses for me? None. 
<laughs> it's kind of in between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, just uh, north of Miami uh, and just uh, just west of Fort Lauderdale. So April in South South Florida. Uh, I'm going to bring my my talents to South Beach. My fingerprint talents to no. Yeah, <laughs> I'd pay to see that. <laughs> Actually, just tonight. I went and got some Chipotle for uh, for dinner, and uh, the guy at the cash register said, "Yeah, I've seen you come in here a few times over the past couple months. Uh, has anyone ever told you you look like Dirk Nowitzki?" I said, "Yeah, yeah I, I, I get that every once in a while." Um, <laughs> so, if you're interested in that, uh, send me an email or look on my website rayforensics.com for more information. Uh, you can come to just the one exclusionology class, just the other Photoshop class, or both combined uh, over the course of the five day week. And with that, uh, well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, really consider uh, contributing to the podcast. Like I said, even just a dollar a month uh, gets you access to a whole lot more uh, stuff, old episodes, and new content that we're going to be posting just to our contributors on Patreon. Uh, so a quarter an episode. Was this, what do you think, Glenn? Was this episode worth a quarter? For sure. No doubt. Oh, abs- absolutely. I, I would have paid a dollar for this episode. Well, that's four dollars a month then. So, uh, if if you uh, are, are looking to uh, to help us out with that, uh, please take a look at contributing, and uh, we will also say your name on the podcast to thank you for doing so. Uh, you can send us emails, questions, comments, Eric at rayforensics.com or Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Remember, the opinions expressed belong to us and not to any agency that I work for. Listen to us every Thursday now coming out on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Give us some ratings, uh, reviews on those platforms. And don't forget to subscribe at Double Loop Pod on Twitter. So with that, uh, see you guys next time for more Making a Murderer Season 2 Talk. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Bye.